To The Point, the negotiation podcast with Kel Jensen and Tim Cummings. To The Point, your time is precious. And that's why we've created To The Point, a 20-minute podcast that will save you hours full of facts and findings to the point gets to the heart of the best and the latest negotiation practices developed and delivered by the creators of The Negotiation Room, a world-renowned program that's changing the face of modern negotiations. Keld Jensen, it is wonderful to be doing this with you. And for this, our first edition, let me pass over to you. Likewise, Tim, um, love working with you on this project as well. Today's um, key item we're going to talk about are the 10 things you always should prepare prior to a negotiation. And uh, obviously, as it is to the point, we will be getting to the point because we only have 20 minutes. So as Tim pointed out, we will definitely deliver it very quickly and very exact to the point. So you will save hours in your preparation. And the first one up there is actually for you to identify how important is your negotiation. So prior to stepping into any negotiation, you have to identify, is this crucial for me? And is it crucial for the counterpart? Um, we usually work with something called the strategy assessment metrics that will basically identify how important is the negotiation to the counterpart and how important are you to the counterpart and how important is the counterpart to you? So if you imagine, um, uh, imagine a matrix where both of you are equally important to, to each other, you are in the top right corner, and the negotiation is essential, very important for both of you. On the other hand, if the counterpart don't perceive the negotiation very important for them, or you are not very important for them, and uh, opposite, the counterpart is not very important for you, well, you are in the lower uh, bottom left corner, and that means the negotiation is not that essential. The only other thing I want to add on how important the negotiation is really make sure you got a mandate and make sure the counterpart got a mandate. You want to negotiate with people who can actually sign the contract. Um, next one, it's you, Tim. Well, stakeholders, um, I don't think we can get far in any negotiation without understanding who are the stakeholders. And of course, many talk about the fact that often the negotiation with the stakeholders other than the counterparty is often more difficult than the negotiation with the counterparty. <laughs> so what do we have to think about here? Well, there are different stakeholders with very different interests. So we need to understand what is their interest and also what is their influence? We have those who are going to be critical as supporters, as enablers, as people who give us authority to do the negotiation. We will have others who are ready to help enthusiastic supporters for what we want to do. But we will inevitably have others that are potentially an obstacle, people who have particular perspectives or viewpoints, like a competitor, for example, who doesn't actually want us to win. What influence could they bring to bear? And then, of course, we have other silent stakeholders like the regulatory authorities or the general public who actually do have an interest in what we're up to, and we better make sure that we don't upset them. So how do we go about doing that? Well, of course, the answer is you need to start mapping them. And you 
develop categories such as those that I've mentioned, and you plot people in there. And you think, of course, as much as you can of how can I move them into being a supporter rather than perhaps an obstacle or an indifferent bystander. Um, so we're constantly looking at almost, I guess, Keld, a negotiation within a negotiation. Absolutely. Let's look at point three. Mm, exactly. Very good points. Um, well, point three is actually easy. And this is an advice I'm sharing with all clients and all students with this essential before you step into any negotiation. You need to know your starting point. You need to know your target and you need to know your walk away scenario, your threshold of pain. If you don't know these three scenarios, you are not qualified or ready to negotiate. Besides those three, you also need to prioritize the order of the variables you want to negotiate. And just to explain very briefly, a variable is everything that is negotiable. So that could be delivery time or price or warranty or warehouse or whatever you got that is negotiable. So if something is is, is limited by law, or limited by company policy, it's not a variable because it can't be negotiated. But everything that is uh, able and ready to be negotiated is a variable. So you need to prioritize your order of variables you need to expand the number of variables as well. Way too often I see organizations that are negotiating on, on too few variables because they're just negotiating on the simple same uh, eight, seven, eight, nine variables. And perhaps they're even negotiating on variables that are not creating value, uh, neither to them or to the counterpart. But just to summarize very quickly, starting point, target, threshold of pain are really essential. Well, I want to talk for a moment about the importance of fallbacks, understanding whether you've got them and what they are. Um, that is really going to determine very much the stance, the policy, the practice, the plan we put in place for our negotiation overall. Do we have, for example, alternative sources of supply? Are there other customers or opportunities that we could be pursuing that actually, based on where we get to in negotiation, we may at some point realize are more attractive, potentially more profitable, because our resources are not infinite. We do have to make choices over where we spend our time, expend our effort, and the relationships that are really worth having and really valuable. But of course, sometimes our alternatives may be very limited. We may be dealing with a, an, a, an item in massively short supply. Understanding what our alternatives are is fundamental to establishing the position we're going to take and, of course, the level of power and influence we have over the outcome of that negotiation. It's often been referred to as BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Um, there are derivatives of that thinking, but essentially we do need to understand the bigger picture. What mm. choices do we actually have? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I very much agree. Uh, if I could just add one comment to, end, uh, to that, what I sometimes find, Tim, is that people consider successful negotiation is only when you reach an agreement with your counterpart. Um, but I often say that a successful negotiation could actually be successful even if you don't reach an agreement with your counterpart. Because if your next best alternative is better, then reaching an agreement, well, then you are successful not reaching an agreement. So we, we just have to be very aware of that before we step into any negotiation. When we look at the counterpart goals and interests, um, I typically say we should be more focused on the counterpart values, cost, interest, purpose, 
um, than our own. We should start focusing on the counterpart. I'm generalizing, obviously, but what I find quite often is that most negotiators, including myself, by the way, is very egocentric. We have to tendency to step into negotiation and thinking about what is my cost, what is my liabilities, what is my profit, what is what is it I want to achieve, and then we forget there's a human being sitting on the other side of the table with a body temperature that is a very identical to to your own. So instead of arguing, and an argumentation could be, well, everybody in the industry is doing this. This is the standard contract. This is always what all our other suppliers are accepting. Instead of using these argumentations, start asking questions. So. When you have the urge to argue, replace that argumentation with a question. So instead of telling the counterpart, we want to go from A to B, you could replace that with a question saying, how do you think we could go from A to B? So prepare questions, open-ended questions, so you know more about your counterpart. So if the counterpart comes to you and say, we would like to change the delivery date by two weeks, instead of saying that's not possible or that will cost us a fortune, ask them a question. What is the value to you? Why would you like to do it? What is the benefit? What is the cost? So on and so forth. Yeah, I think that golden interest thing is always so fascinating, isn't it, Cal? Because very often the true goals and interests are actually hidden behind a whole series of uh, interfaces. You know, particularly, I think, in standard procurement type activity, very often the bit documentation that comes to you is not actually self-evident as to what the real underlying goals and interests mm, are because mm. they've been subsumed and turned into a number of characteristics that you're required to meet as a potential supplier. Mm. So really getting to digging into what is the true result somebody's trying to achieve or the outcome that represents success. Many will say, well, it's pretty obvious when we talk about the fact you need to analyse your known or likely competition. Mm. And yes, of course, that is obvious. If I'm operating trying to sell somebody computers, then obviously it's good to know who else provides competitive computers. Mm. But we need to look much further than that, I think. And the intelligent negotiator is not just thinking narrowly about like-for-like -like product or service, but they're also thinking about perhaps alternatives. So, for example, if I sell computers, but somebody else sells computing power, I'm not necessarily competing on a like-for-like -like basis. But equally, I'd like to suggest that we need to recognize that very often we're competing not just for the product or service, but we're competing for the funds. So... A buyer has often got multiple choices about where money is going to be spent. And the return on investment, for example, is going to determine where their priorities for budget are going to be. So we really do need to understand competition, I would suggest, in that much broader context of what are we competing against in terms of the alternatives for spending that money or deploying that resource. Mm, yep. It's very important. And and as we talked about a little bit similar to the next best alternative, it's very, very important that we actually know what is the what what is the competition, what is it we can compare to out there. Um, when we talk about weaknesses uh, as a negotiator and as a team, I normally ask my audience, what do you think is your strength and your weaknesses? Typically question, obviously. What is your strength and weaknesses as a negotiator and as a negotiation team? 
And not only should you obviously be aware of your weaknesses as a negotiator, but certainly also try and identify the counterpart. And when we talk about identifying weaknesses, it's often also related to the behavior we have at the negotiation table. And what I typically see is that we might have combative negotiators. We might have negotiators who are concession oriented. They're searching for compromises. Um, they might be very collaborative, or they might be using stalling techniques. There are different approaches that we will talk about in a, on another podcast. But it's very important to understand what is my weakness as a negotiator. So if I'm sitting at the table and I'm actually back to this thing I mentioned earlier, asking questions, if I find it very con con confrontational to ask questions, is that a weakness? That's something I need to focus on. So we need to understand our own team's weakness, uh, both content-wise back to the variables and the data and the value and the cost, but certainly also on our behavior. And that could actually be a completely different chapter on uh, behavior versus content of the negotiation. So think about that before you step in, discuss it with your colleagues in the team and certainly try and identify the counterpart as well. Well, I think a nice build from that topic, Carl, is the thinking about what is the makeup of the team, understanding what the makeup is going to be of the counterparty's team, mm -hmm. looking at opportunities for alignment, for building relationships, for building advocates, but equally not introducing people who may turn out to be disruptive, for example, if they don't have an alter ego. Mm. So, you know, one or two examples of that, certainly in my experience, uh, if there is an executive sponsor on the counterparty team, you desperately have to have somebody who is equivalent type of status and authority to that counterparty sponsor. If they don't feel they've got an alter ego, particularly as the value and the importance of the, of the relationship of the acquisition or sale grows, that sense that there is somebody, you know, when things are tough, when the going gets difficult, that there is that counterpart to talk to is an absolute example of something that is uh, critical as mm. a aspect of teaming. But on the other side, you know, do you want an expert from your finance department? Do you want to bring in a lawyer if mm. the counterparty doesn't actually have that expertise on the team? And generally speaking, the answer is probably no, because mm. that will actually be seen as quite threatening. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean you don't engage those people, but you do need to make sure that you have got your timing right. And if you feel that you need to have a lawyer or a finance manager or whatever, make sure the counterparty is aware of that so that they have the opportunity to bring in a balancing personality on their team. Mm, yes, very important point, Tim, you're bringing up there. Um, I, I want to take one step back talking about teams, and that is teams. Um, because quite often, Tim, people are surprised that I recommend that you have to negotiate at a team. I, I sometimes find professionals who absolutely prefer to negotiate on their own and actually dislike working in a team. But my finding throughout many years is that we are so much better in a negotiation when we're operating as a team, because there is just too much data. There is easily information um, overload and it is simply too much going on that, that we can just operate on our own. So we need quite often um, to set up a team. And I normally recommend like two or three people in a team, depending on the situation, obviously. So we need a head of the team. We need a calculator. We need a note taker. And very, very quickly, 
explain. The head of the team, obviously, is the head of the team. We have a note taker that will be kind of the memory of the team, very good at picking up dates and asking questions. And then we have the calculator that, as the title goes, will be in charge of every financial uh, conclusion uh, throughout that negotiation. And that by itself obviously complicates negotiation even more because suddenly you have to work together with two, three other people um, during that negotiation. But um, you might be surprised, Tim, how often I actually meet professional who says, well, no, I don't need a team. I'm absolutely fine on my own. <laughs> so it seems to be an issue by itself, just, you know, being out there and, and working with the team, but uh, a very important uh, topic as well. I guess some negotiators are really good at um alienating others so they don't want to be gone <laughs> <laughs> absolutely that is true then we got the uh the next item expect the unexpected so how do we actually get into a, a, a negotiation how do we actually make agreement and how do we actually um uh, are sure that we are negotiating with the right people. Well, um, as I mentioned um, early in this podcast, we need to be sure that we got the mandate to negotiate and the counterpart got the mandate as well. But on top of that, I'm normally uh, always saying that we have to expect the unexpected. And I know that's really kind of a stupid advice to give to anybody because how can we expect the unexpected? But we need to have a plan B because human beings are wonderful. They have a tendency to say or do something that we didn't prepare for. Uh, even if we've been sitting preparing for weeks or perhaps even months for an essential important negotiation, we think we are completely covered and then we step in there and the counterpart rates a topic that we just didn't see coming. So we need to have a plan B. What are we going to do when and if the counterpart raises a topic Come brings up a, a, a new items on the agenda that we didn't see coming? And talking about the agenda, um, very simple piece of advice. In our part of the world, um, the Western part of the world at least, agenda is really essential. Creating a structure throughout the, the negotiation is essential. And um, I quite often ask my audience, so who should do the agenda? Is that the host or the guest? And that's kind of a trick question, Tim, because the majority of people I'm asking is, is quite often saying, well, obviously that is the host that should do the agenda. And I'm saying that's absolutely wrong. Because if you as a guest accept the host agenda, then you're already behind on points. So the agenda should be something both parties mutually should negotiate. So they actually have to negotiate before they start negotiating on the agenda. But the agenda can actually save a lot of negotiations just by creating that structure. And obviously, you should also be able to renegotiate the agenda if it doesn't work out during that negotiation. Yeah, I love these topics. I think uh, the the agreement over authorities, of course, absolutely. Uh, you cannot afford to have disagreement amongst your own negotiation team. And of course, that again goes to that second point of expecting the unexpected. Um, it, you do need to have that plan, that that position agreement on a planned breakout or whatever, that the calling of time, or perhaps even under circumstances, certain circumstances, truncating the negotiation and delaying until the mm. next day. Oh, yeah. um, having a governance model for the way you're going to go about managing negotiation is rather like the management of uncertainty when the contract is actually agreed and running, mm. that too brings unexpected events and will often cause you, in fact, to come back and have to renegotiate. Understanding the drivers for a lot of that and 
how you're going to react to the unexpected is really a critical component of, of a good negotiation practice. Let's then get to our, what I guess is um, our final point here, which is, I suppose, wrapping all this up in a way, you need a negotiation plan and a negotiation strategy. Of course, mm. it's going to incorporate all of these things that we've been talking about, but it's more than this. It's also making sure that you have thought through what are the variables what is your, your starting point? What is your room for concession? What is your aim, end point? Is it good practice? Is it always the case that you need to start with extreme position? Because, well, the other party will, and then we're going to beat in the middle. <laughs> or are there some negotiations where you can actually have a more intelligent conversation? And or many of those contentious points, which don't actually often represent sources of value, particularly a lot of the risk clauses in a contract, for example, it can be far more intelligent to either defer those, build trust, build confidence in each other, and perhaps those then become less contentious. And I do want to just pick up on that negotiation agenda point tied into this, Cal, because all too often... I think I've seen agendas that are simply um, sequential activity. Today mm. we're going to negotiate liabilities. Tomorrow we're going to negotiate indemnities. Then we're going to negotiate liquidated damages. Well, firstly, mm. you know, it, 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 it's it's such a shame that we allocate so much time to those topics, but that's a different subject. <laughs> but, but importantly... You do need to make sure if you're doing things sequentially that you're not fundamentally missing trade-off opportunities. And that's mm. where planning and strategy really comes to play. Mm. Understand the interconnect, the interdependencies. Don't allow siloed negotiation, which destroys value and builds contention and delay into the whole process and finishes up with a suboptimal outcome. Mm. Why on earth would we want suboptimal outcomes yeah so what we're trying to give you today is some thoughts around the things that you should be doing prior to a negotiation Keld, i'll hand over to you for concluding comment uh my concluding comment would just be really to prepare um unfortunately there are negotiators out there who all the preparation time they take is the traveling time they have from their office to the counterpart's office so i hope it's a long drive um, and it's really essential to understand that not preparing is the same as preparing for failure. So the preparation time you need to take out prior to a negotiation may be way longer than the actual negotiation. So my, my final comments would just be, please, please, please prepare properly for your negotiation. To the point, the negotiation podcast with Kel Jensen and Tim Cummings. 